Hello, thank you for joining me on Humanities Radio. I'm Janet Cunningham with the University of Utah College of Humanities, and today I'm speaking with Elizabeth Clement, Associate Professor of History, about the Utah AIDS Foundation's holiday program. Started in the late 1980s, the Holiday Fund has been providing meals and support to those struggling with the complexities of HIV. Um, So before we start talking about um, the Utah AIDS Foundation holiday program, let's talk a little bit about your research and what led you to kind of work on the AIDS epidemic in Utah, like where kind of your research has started and how it's, how it's, it's gotten to this point. Well, that's funny because that's actually a holiday issue as well. I got a phone call over Christmas break. Uh, oh, I don't know, 2014, 2015, I can't quite remember, uh, from Terry Kogan in the law school, uh, who's faculty there. And he had been at a holiday party with Dr. Reese and had, uh, she had said that now that she had retired, she and Maggie Snyder were wondering what they should do with all of the files that they still had, and maybe they should shred them. And Thank heavens, Terry said, no, 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 no. And so then he brought together me and a couple of other faculty, Liz Rogers from the library and Leslie Francis from philosophy, who does medical ethics, and Dr. Reese and and Maggie Snyder to create uh, an archival collection for Dr. Reese and Maggie's papers that we would then build on getting materials from other places. So the most obvious now is we're in the process of transferring over the Utah AIDS Foundation papers. Um, And Terry wanted an oral history. And so I think that's how he brought me in. Uh, And so we run an oral history collection. We have the archives down at the Marriott Library that have Dr. Reese's papers and Maggie's scrapbooks. And all of those are available for researchers and students to use. And uh, we did a film uh, with the amazing filmmaker Jenny McKenzie uh, about the film. I mean, sorry, about HIV AIDS in Utah. And uh, that premiered at Sundance and it won an Emmy. It's called Quiet Heroes. And so it just sort of morphed into a public history project. And at some point, Terry said that he wanted somebody to write a monograph, uh, which is to say an academic book about history, in, in, about the history of AIDS in Utah. And so I talked to Dr. Reese and Maggie because they weren't really sure what that would mean. And uh, we worked on that for a little bit. And then I put aside a previous project I was working on to do this project, uh, because having interacted as much as I did with, with Reese and Maggie, I just love them and think they're fantastic and they were interested in somebody writing a book and they wanted me to be the person who did it and I was delighted to do that um, with them and so that's how I got involved. And so just to give um, a little bit of context could you talk a little bit about uh, Kristen Reese and her partner Maggie Snyder because I don't For any of those people who aren't aware, she was the first and only physician in the state of Utah to treat HIV patients during the first decade of the epidemic. But could you maybe just talk a little bit about um, her story and her history and how she came to, to start treating HIV patients here in Utah? 
Yeah, Dr. Reese was raised Quaker in Pennsylvania and had parents who very much lived the Quaker way, which is that you see the light of God in all people. And so they raised her in the 1950s as a white person, relatively free of most of the prejudices that white Americans had at the time. And she was always interested in medicine and always interested in science. And luckily had some connections in college through a sorority sister uh, to Medical College of Pennsylvania. So instead of going into science high school teaching, which is sort of where she'd been tracked by her university, she ended up having the opportunity to go to medical school. Um, and she worked in Philadelphia for a long time. And then she actually worked on the uh, on a reservation providing medical care. Um, and then she eventually ended up in Salt Lake City in a private practice right around when HIV AIDS was first breaking in the medical community. When, when we, so in 1981, when we became aware that HIV was a thing. Because, um, you know, as we all now know with COVID, you can, you don't know when a disease is breaking, right? Because people can't see it if they don't know it's there. And so it's not that HIV started in 1981, it's that that's when the CDC suddenly realized, oh, there might be something happening here. Um, and Dr. Reese really was interested in it because she likes puzzles and that's why she was in infectious disease to begin with. And she just found it intellectually very stimulating. Interestingly, she was also a closeted lesbian um, she maintains that that didn't have anything to do with her willingness to treat people. Um, Maggie is uh, very clear that she wanted to be involved in HIV because she was a queer person uh, and saw this as hitting her community. Uh, but Dr. Reese was really into it. She, she said in one point in an oral history that, you know, I love detective stories and, and uh, infectious disease is a detective story. And I read about it in, I read about HIV AIDS in the MMWR when it came out. And I thought, oh, this sounds like an STD and I'm going to follow it. And within a year, she had already seen a patient here in Utah. So by 1982, where she thought that uh, that person might have HIV AIDS. And she went to the health department and the health department said, we're not going to get into this. This is not a, a disease we want to have anything to do with. She tried to alert them. Um, and so she, I, it's not actually really clear how she began to get patients, uh, except that everybody else was refusing them. And then it just spread word of mouth that, you know, she was willing to treat people. And we are a very conservative state. And uh, we're a state that has a dominant religion that's very hostile to homosexuality. And so no one else was willing to do it. And then it kind of became a self-fulfilling prophecy because when people realized we should go out and do education with other medical people in the hopes that they would also treat people. And instead what happened was they just referred to her. And she was extremely lucky to be an admitting physician at Holy Cross Hospital, which has a mission to help the poor and the power, or actually it's to stand with the poor and the powerless. And so the nuns of Holy Cross or the, the sisters of Holy Cross uh, were, were willing to take these patients. And in 1987, things, you know, the, the number of patients that Reese was seeing and that therefore were being hospitalized at Holy Cross had gotten so large and the problems of managing that population and the fact that lots of staff didn't want to treat them and janitorial people didn't want to go into their rooms. Um, they created an AIDS ward, um, which was the first AIDS ward in the Intermountain West. Um, and one of the first AIDS wards in the world, although the very first AIDS war ward was in San Francisco. 
And her story truly is incredible. So I would definitely encourage anyone listening to check out um, the documentary Quiet Heroes or the collection, her um, the Kristen Reese HIV AIDS collection in the Marriott Library to learn more about her incredible story, her and Maggie Snyder's incredible story. And the, uh, the documentary is the library owns a copy of it, so you can stream it through the library website, but also Amazon Prime has it as well, and you can pay a, you know, a small amount of money and stream it through them as well. It's about 50 minutes. Okay, yeah, I would really just encourage, I mean, it really truly is an incredible story, so I would definitely encourage anyone listening to um, go and watch that movie or look into the um, collection at the Marriott Library. And shout out to any humanities or social science students or really anybody, but those oral histories are down there and people can do research papers on them. And um, if they have questions, I'm available. They can reach out to me. I'm on the history department website, uh, but they really are amazing, amazing stories in the oral histories, both with Reese and Maggie, but then with, I mean, I think at this point we've interviewed about 40 people. We have about 350 hours of uh, oral histories, and they're all transcribed, so they're quite easy to use. Wonderful. So through this, through your work in, in HIV uh, AIDS epidemic work, you've had a lot of access to the Utah AIDS Foundation and their programs. And so this is kind of our segue, I guess, to their holiday program. So can you give us a little bit about the history of this program? Well, the history of the program is actually kind of fascinating. So um, it, and it actually begins before the foundation of the Utah AIDS Foundation itself, or even the foundation of any ASOs, that ASOs are AIDS service organizations in Utah. Um, it actually starts with the Royal Court of the Golden Spike Empire, which is Utah's drag court, um, and uh, which is to say drag queens who put on shows. Uh, the Royal Court system was founded by Jose Soria in San Francisco in the early 60s, and he founded it as a charitable organization. So it was about creating community among gay people, and particularly among non-binary gay people, people who like to experiment with gender play, drag queens. Uh, but then, uh, but he deliberately made it a fundraising organization. And so in 1975, he sent his Princess Royale out to Salt Lake City to meet with the local drag scene because we had a local drag scene. And uh, and he did this in areas all around the West. And now the court system is actually international. So it's spread not just around the country, but internationally. Um, and they handpicked people to, um, uh, Martin Pollack was one of the people to uh, found the royal court here. And they began doing fundraising. And one of the things they did was Toys for Tots. Uh, and this is in the 70s. And then by the early 1980s, as AIDS began to hit the gay community here, they began to do, the Royal Court began to do all kinds of fundraising and they converted their Toys for Tots program over into basically a sub for Santa program for people with AIDS. And so that's actually where it came from was, you know, the, the, it was mutating out of uh, an earlier charitable effort. And the Royal Court, in raised about six hundred thousand dollars in the course of about 10 years um, for aids related causes they were the largest gay organization in the state when the epidemic broke and they really were the only major fundraising organization that people had or gay people had in utah and so they jumped right in and of course they were being affected by hiv aids and and so they wanted to help um, but it was interesting because I think Saria, in part, founded 
the the court as a as a volunteer and as a charity organization to raise the respectability of drag as a as an art form and to basically say you know we're not just running around in dresses although we are and there's nothing wrong with that and that's actually great but we contribute to the community and initially they mostly contributed to the straight community i mean toys for tots they're definitely gay people with kids i'm one of them but you know toys for tots is pretty broad and then when AIDS hit and, and we needed services for people and so few people in the community in Utah were willing to help people with AIDS, the, the royal court pivoted and began to do a lot of that AIDS fundraising. Um, and, and then it, it sort of morphed again and it became both a Toys for Tots sort of program, so a gift program over the holidays, but it also was a food program. So by the early 90s, it was uh meals at thanksgiving and over the holidays and then there was a holiday gift program where people could say what they needed and then you know friends would people would then donate those things um so that sort of similar to the to what we have today where you know you can pick a a card off a christmas tree uh for a kid who needs something you know one of those programs i think the college of humanities actually runs a program similar to that um and then they actually at some point started doing uh easter as well um it was originally called a christmas program and a sub for santa but the original uh the, the original director of the Utah AIDS Foundation, Ben Barr, was Jewish. He grew up at 9th and 9th in that neighborhood as a working class Jewish kid. And so pretty quickly they turned it into a holiday program and they would make Christmas baskets, but they also started making Hanukkah baskets. Um, and so it became a really extensive program. And by the late 1990s, they were raising like $60,000 to cover all of this stuff. Um, and the Utah AIDS Foundation coordinated it and it also um, but there was also a particular program that the royal court stayed deeply involved with, uh, where they gave a hundred dollars to every PWA who needed money at Christmas. Oh wow! Right, and that was just kind of an amazing and a little bit of a radical thing. Mm -hmm. And so, from what I understand, it when the when the program first began, it was a little bit controversial. Why was that? Yeah. Well, it. People are anxious about giving cash to poor people. They think that poor people will spend money on drugs. And it, it has a lot to do with how hostile Americans are to the poor and how much they see poverty as a moral failing rather than as a structural issue. You know, in a capitalist economy, many, many people don't succeed uh, because of the way the economy is structured. But I think a lot of Americans... I think because that's so frightening to them, right? because that could happen to them, tend to blame the poor for their poverty. And so it was quite radical to give out cash, but the royal court insisted that they do that. And there were sort of two reasons for that. One was that people with end-stage AIDS who are very, very poor do not need to take an extra step to cash a check <laughs> right. before they go to the grocery store or use the money. Um, and so part of it was just practical. Like when you are dying, it is really hard to have the energy to add yet another errand to your list. Um, and, and they didn't want to do that, right? And again, they are very close to a lot of the people 
that that had AIDS. They, they had AIDS themselves, some of them. So we had emperors and empresses who have died of AIDS in Utah, quite a few. Um, and so they knew intimately what that was like because many of them had AIDS, because they were caring for, for people who had AIDS and they, they had an up-close view of what that was like. And they knew that cash was just so much easier to use. Um, the other reason though, was that they felt that cash conveyed dignity, that it said to people, we trust you. We, we believe that you will use this money appropriately. Um, and so even within the gay community, there was some anxiety about, oh, are these people going to use it for drugs and then they're going to use it. And, and the thing is, I, I, there's a great quotation from, um, I believe it's Curtis Jensen. I might be getting that wrong. Um, where, or it might have been Scott Stites, actually, who's another emperor, who basically, I think it was Scott Stites, who said, I don't care. If they want to use it for drugs, they are dying of AIDS. Their lives are miserable. If they want to go out and party, they should do that. Um, but more broadly, many more people have told me that they know that the, the royal court was aware that people were using this money to pay their bills and that people were using this money to participate in the holidays and to be able to buy gifts for family. And that that is a, when you can't do that, when you can't participate in major rituals in your community and with your family, that really is an enormous hit to your dignity. And so that giving cash and giving a hundred bucks and not making a social worker show up to make sure that you needed it and supervise how you spent it was part of making people with AIDS feel like they had self-respect and dignity and that they could be trusted to use this money to participate in a holiday that was important to them and that was important to their family. And, and so that's, I think, really at the heart of why to this day, the Royal Court still gives a hundred bucks every year uh, to any person with AIDS that needs it. Um, and and they still give cash. Wow. They, don't, they don't think that social workers need to decide who deserves this money and supervise how it's spent. Um, and I, I think that's wonderful because I love social workers. My wife is a social worker, but I also think that insisting in every instance that social workers supervise the poor is disrespectful. And it implies that the poor are poor because they're lazy and not because there are so many reasons in this economy that somebody might be poor, either in general or at a very specific time in their life. And so it gave people dignity and self-respect. And, and that is what the court wanted to do. In so you mentioned that they still, they continue to take today to give out that $100 cash. How, what it, other changes have has the program gone through and what is it like today? I know you kind of mentioned kind of how it has evolved. So what's the program like today? You know, I don't actually know a lot about what the program is like today, other than that it still exists and they also still do the sub for Santa and you can go to the Utah AIDS Foundation or call and say, hey, I want to, you know, I want to give gifts. Um, it's also a very generous program. So in the early 1990s, they decided that it was not just going to be the broader set of programs were not just going to be for the person with AIDS, but for anyone in the anyone in the household that they lived with. And they were very specific about household because, of course, at the time, if you said family, that often meant straight family, like people, gay people couldn't marry. Um, and so, and so, for example, we the Utah AIDS Foundation gives toys still. 
because there are kids living in families with people with AIDS and they need presence too. Um, and so, I mean, I think what's interesting is that it's, it's such an ongoing program. I also think it's interesting how expansive it is, right? That it's not just for the individual, that it really is for the household. And we're going to support these households because, of course, those households are supporting people with AIDS, right? And so giving to them is part thanking them for their support of this person who has a, a disease that needs to be managed or that can be fatal. Um, and it's all part of that sense of the AIDS community as being much broader than just individual people with AIDS. It really is an incredible program. And I really appreciate you taking the time to kind of discuss this history with it because it really is this incredible history and how it has evolved and changed throughout the years. Is there anything else you would like to add that you would like the listener, our listeners to understand? Sure. Another thing that I think made it so successful was that it mimics or is similar to things that both LDS communities and Catholic communities, those are the two largest religious groups in the state, do and felt comfortable doing. Not the cash, not the $100, but the sub for Santa stuff. And, and if you look at the Utah AIDS Foundation records, you'll see elementary schools putting together, you know, little baskets for people and you'll see LDS wards putting together baskets for people. And I think it was very, very concrete. And it was something that even if you were a little uncomfortable about homosexuality or AIDS or IV drug users, that you did understand this thing, right, that, that Christmas slash the holidays were the significant time and that you didn't want people in your community to be in need, right? And so I think it also really helped because it connected so well with the values of the local community, even if the people who had AIDS were often rejected by the local community or by individuals within the local community. And so that, that I think was really nice too. And I'm sure that programs like this happen around the country that aid service organizations in New York and San Francisco and Chicago ran these kinds of programs as well. But I think they were particularly effective here uh, because people understood that model of support within the community for other people who were in need. That was Elizabeth Clement, Associate Professor of History. For more information about the College of Humanities, please visit humanities.utah.edu and don't forget to subscribe to Humanities Radio.